0: Fellow writers, you have found Catherine's Corner of the Scripturian Society, where we discuss specific books from the writer's perspective. Here with me, Carissa, aka Lewis, aka Catherine, we discuss the writer's side of reading to analyze some of the specifics that makes a book work or not work on a literary level. As usual, expect some spoilers, so if you have no interest in reading the book in the title, or if you already have, you can feel free to stick around and see what you can learn. If not, you might want to come back at a later time. (laughs) If you're not a writer, just a reader who wanted more content on this book, welcome. Today, if you couldn't tell from the title, we're going to be talking about Nevernight by Jay Kristoff. We're going to start right off. With the admission that I am not sure if this is a YA book or not, I believe it was marketed as YA because it popped up on my Amazon page and that's basically all I buy there, but this book is a great example of what we would call a gray area. How do we define YA? Typically I think it's supposed to be the age of the protagonist, right? Thirteen to nineteen. It's a bit of an ambiguous line because some thirteen year old protagonists are for middle grade and nineteen is where you start to get into NA, even eighteen sometimes is when you start to get into NA. But our main character in this book is solidly sixteen. Clear cut, right? Wrong. <laughs> this book is dark. There is murder. Very macabre and descriptive murder. There is sex. And yes, it's graphic. And there is a totally dark vibe that seems more NA than YA. So is the age of the protagonist the only factor in determining this category? Some people might argue it has to do with theme. Coming of age themes are going to be middle grade YA and NA, though it's going to differ a little between all of those. You can have a child protagonist in an adult book, for instance, if the themes aren't related to growing up or finding out who you are but I think even that, even saying that YA is about growing up themes, is oversimplifying it. If this book weren't so graphic, I would say it was YA, but because it goes into very descriptive detail on certain things, and because there's a certain lack of the typical hope associated with YA, it might be NA. Except the protagonists and most of the supporting characters aren't old enough for that. So for now, we're just going to call it a dark YA book. You're just going to have to trust me on this. We're just going to go with dark YA, okay? Okay. Another reason it's hard to pin this book down into the YA genre is that it's written in a bit of a more elevated style. It has footnotes. How do you guys feel about footnotes? I like them in theory, but not typically in practice. So like in Nevernight, Mia is our main character, but it's a hardcore third-person story where we get a lot of other perspectives coming into play from Trick to her shadow cat to the narrator. In the footnotes, the narrator gives us background stories on the little details he's using casually in the narration, which adds a really unique and cool element to the world building. Except that for me, when I'm in the middle of a sentence, breaking to read the footnotes really takes me out of the flow of the writing. It almost gives me anxiety, like I have to race through reading the footnote before I lose the thread of the story. And that's easy to do if it's one sentence, but most of these footnotes are paragraphs and tiny stories within the big one. So I think this was an example of footnotes done well. I just don't think I love footnotes as a general rule. Technically speaking, I guess you could skip reading them and still enjoy and get the whole of the story put As a writer, that makes me cringe to say. Apparently, did you know this? Apparently, some people just don't read prologues or epilogues or dialogue, and this makes me want to cry. The author puts it in there for a reason. You should read it. It's part of the story. Ah! Anyway, I also can't decide if footnotes are a lazy way or a creative way to do world building. Generally speaking, I would advise you to shy away from this. But Jay Kristoff is an excellent writer, and this series is really popular, so this might just be a personal thing for me. If you find footnotes annoying, don't use them. (laughs) If you like them, I would just suggest making them as short as possible so the reader doesn't lose the vibe and the thread of the sentence the footnote is technically a part of. Even if the footnote is at the end of the sentence, it still breaks you from the flow of the writing and the prose and everything. So I would just make them as short as possible if that's something you really want to do. All right. If you have listened to some of the earlier episodes of this podcast, back from like (laughs) episode one, you'll know I have a love-hate relationship with this book. Essentially, its premise is that this girl, Mia, lives in a world where the suns, there are several, only set for a day or so every several years. The planet is perpetually sunlit otherwise because the sun's setting never align except for this one day, thus never night. And a lot <laughs> happens on the day the sun's set. Private things and shady things and so many things happen. A while back, Mia's family was murdered in front of her, and she has now vowed revenge on the people who are responsible. So over the course of this book, she's on a mission to find and then graduate from a school that's more like a dark seminary, where they train people to assassinate in the name of this goddess they follow. Mia wants to be the best assassin she can be so that she can get revenge for her family, and this is the best place to do that. She's surrounded by other people her age who want just as badly to either serve the goddess or get their own revenge or make their families proud. Bonus, one of the girls she befriends is named Ash, like our very own aka Tolkien, so that's pretty cool. And it has super dark Harry Potter school vibes to it. (laughs) We get to see me as classes on how to seduce and how to steal secrets and how to undergo torture without breaking and how to fight. It's all very intriguing and there are so many things I loved about it. And we will get to those things. But first, let's talk about what I didn't like. In the first episode of this podcast, a meta first episode about writing first chapters, I think is what it's called. It's the first one. I talk about how great I think the opening chapter to this book is. Highly recommend you listen to that episode to learn more about how important those first chapters are to writing your book, but in a more limited way. Highly recommend you read the first chapter of Nevernight for a really epic start to a story. The problem is that The rest of the book doesn't really follow the cool mirroring format the first chapter had, and that was disappointing. It's not that it should have or needed to keep up in the exact same way, but it didn't feel much like the same story after that, so the hook didn't outlast that first chapter for me. Don't do this. Don't make your first chapter so different from the rest of the book that the readers will put it down after the second chapter. Even if your first chapter rocks, all the following ones have to be of the same intrigue and quality. It took me about two months to read this book, and when I say that, I mean it took me two months to get through the first hundred pages or so. They were on the boring side, especially after that awesome first chapter. It was a lot of world building, and I'm very generous on that count because I love world building. So, more than that, there wasn't any real conflict yet. We knew Mia's goals, but she was doing a lot of succeeding at that point because she already starts out as a really epically trained assassin. So the first hundred pages or so are just about her getting to this assassin school. So she's really good at everything up until that point. There is this one really cool scene where she first meets Trick, our spoiler alert, love interest, and a great character in his own right, where they have to fight these sand krakens. It was awesome. I do love that part. But the scenes before and after, not much else going on. Disappointing. The pace of your book needs to match all the way through. And this can be tough when you're trying to do some serious world building along the way, I know. But I would say the solution to this isn't footnotes or a boring hundred pages. I think the solution to this is to build in those details as they come up instead of trying to build it all up front introduce us to a variety of characters so conversations get going and differing worldviews can be discussed to give the readers a general idea of the world, build in flashbacks later in the story. You could even pull a Harry Potter and give your character classes on subjects in the world. And this book does all of that, it just does it all later and after those first hundred pages. So generally just didn't love those first several chapters, and you you should strive to avoid doing that in your writing. The second reason I really struggled to love this book is that it is gross, like in a disturbing way. They travel through pools of blood. Yes, blood. And gross, recently expelled with other organ bits in the mix of blood. It made me gag, which, to be fair, I believe was part of the point, The total gross factor is really what made me think this might be an NA book in disguise. And I don't even mind that the theme is so strongly bent on revenge because I expect the next two books in the trilogy will build on what was laid down here. It's just so, so graphic. So be warned if you haven't read it yet. I do think... The graphicness contributed to the story here, it's illustrating the total messiness and darkness of the world Mia lives in and how hard it is to get by when you're sensitive or loving or just a good person, but still not pleasant to read. Also, way to make a cat weirdly terrifying... Her cat is really just a shadow creature and it feeds on her fear so she's never afraid this is a very cool detail but he's also very sinister and he's named mr kindly so it's just like just like a little disturbing and he gets upset whenever me is happy so i'm not convinced he's actually the spirit of her dearly departed childhood cat but it did work for the creep factor all of this does really add to the theme and the point of the story It's just that all of this combined also really gave me the heebie-jeebies. It was hard to stomach at times. So I think you as a writer need to decide what you're trying to do, what you're going for. If you're going for a gross factor, you need to make sure you're not going so far with it that you discourage your target audience, i.e. a teenage audience if you're in YA or even NA sometimes. But if you're going for a dark theme, you want your writing in the world to reflect that as much as possible. So Nevernight may just be a case study in a book that is good, but not for me. The issue with this theory is that there are some things I really loved, too. Cue the world building. The world in this book is awesome. I love the concept of a world where the sun's almost never set. You would think that a world full of light would be happy and free, but the sun issue is actually the primary driver of all the darkness in this world. Of course, our real world has darkness, too, But with so much light all the time the darkness in this story is all out in the open it's almost like some people are driven insane by the amount of light because of how much it reveals so the people aren't really trying to hide their evils in this book because it would be impossible for them to do anyway they're used to things being known and out in the open there is a literal murder school And the government isn't thrilled by this. They are trying to find it, but it's really hard to because so many people appreciate it and are helping it stay secret. Every dark deed and desire from the lowest in society to the highest is out there for everyone to see all the time. And this just amplifies evil because with no one trying to hide it, no one feels much guilt for it either. The people who killed me as parents, government and church officials, I think, don't care at all that they did this. They feel no guilt for it. They're actually upset that she survived. (laughs) And Mia herself is not inclined to forgive them, not even a little. Our main character herself is just as dark as everyone around her. And so all the graphicness and darkness to some of these scenes makes sense Because, of course, children would have to live with these things in such a world, and of course all the adults would find themselves blameless as they corrupt everything innocent. It was very cool world-building in tune to the theme. It just took a little too long to illustrate for me uh, Kristoff comes up with some great little details to really build the world up as a real place. How buildings would coexist with such constant sunlight, how punishments would be associated with isolation instead of darkness, how certain leaders would have taken certain stances on issues to gain popularity in the past. So many intricate little details I really liked. If you're building a world, there are some great tools to take away from this book. If you're writing a high fantasy like Tolkien, you don't have to make the world identical to Earth in the sense that days and nights function the same, or time, or animal life. You don't have to write gravity at the same strength, or utilize similar continents or government structures. You have total freedom. This can be daunting. It's comforting to lean sometimes on basic details, like knowing how and when the sun rises, But if you leave that comfort zone, you can create a world that is super unique and that almost builds itself by the very extensive consequences of that one changed detail. Now, I'm going to say something surprising, at least for those of you who know me well to any degree. This book has sex scenes, and I think they worked. I do not typically think this. I do not typically think sex scenes are good for books. They so rarely contribute to the story. They seem... Don't get upset. Like, kind of a vain pornographic thing to do. And porn is never considered good cinema. There's a reason for that. It's because sex is so much more impactful in a story when it's implied. Writing the scenes out in your book can feel not only like a total violation of the character's privacy, but also like we're bringing the action to a grinding halt for the sake of, you know, whatever you get out of sex scenes it's just not good writing. But here in a book this dark and with a relationship so contingent on these scenes, I do think it actually works. I hold it did not need to be quite as graphic as it was, but let me explain. Trick is our love interest for Mia. Gosh, I do love him. He is a great love interest. He's tough and rough around the edges, but not shy about showing concern and care for her. But he's also willing to back off when she wants him to. They have a sort of will-they-won't-they vibe going for a while, and because they're technically competing for spots in their school, Mia's really hesitant to get close to him. But then they do, and we all know where it goes from there. But then, later on, Mia has to betray him. Now, she doesn't really have to, but essentially to graduate from this school, there are only so many spots, right? And each of the teachers gives out these Contests or these tests or these games, and if you win the game, you're considered pretty much a shoe in to get in, and you might be essentially the only ones to get in. So, Mia essentially tricks Trick into winning one of these games that he was going to let her win because she has an unexpected game already in the bag and she needs it to look real so no one will think she's going soft on trick so she uses trick's history and his past which is very traumatic against him in public it is a truly cruel betrayal she has promised to keep all this to herself to never tell a soul and not only does she break that but she uses it against him taunting him with the fact that he was the product of rape and that his grandfather treated him really badly for this Trick is at this school so he can become powerful enough to kill his grandfather for this treatment. And Mia just lays that all out there for everyone in the freaking room. It is really awful. His deepest secret that he shared with her during their <clears throat> rendezvous out for everyone to see. And she has, like, sort of a good reason to do it. But because we experienced these really raw scenes of the two of them, we as readers feel it like he does when she betrays him. They have a really great love story going and then when she throws that in his face we are just as attached as he was and it is devastating we know it's going to ruin everything even when she explains herself to him after the games are up and the sex scenes admittedly really contributed to this totally stomach dropping moment bravo i think so please please Consider not putting sex scenes into your books unless they are absolutely necessary for effect or story. Nine times out of ten, they are not. Fade to Black works wonders. It not only actually lets the reader use more of their imagination, if that's what you're going for, it also keeps the pace of the story moving. If it's necessary for you to include this type of effect, I guess go for it. But I don't think sex scenes are the type of thing that can go in just any book so long as you write them well enough. First of all, because I'm not sure that's often possible. There are just not enough non-creepy words for body parts for these scenes to flow as well as fight scenes or arguments or internal monologues. But second, it takes a very particular story to justify such scenes, and you need to be careful you're not writing in your own fantasies or irrelevant secondary storylines for characters with no real impact on the plot in Nevernight, the fact that the characters had been sexually active together not only played into certain plot points like the fact that they couldn't use each other's alibis once since it was a rule break for them to be doing that at the school and therefore they got accused of unsanctioned murder and almost got beaten to death and expelled but we as readers know they're both innocent because we know they were together that's plot relevance for us as readers But it also contributes to the emotional impact of that betrayal scene. It packs a real punch. The sex scene needs to do that for the story, not the reader. You feel what I'm saying? Just like any other scene, fluff or just-for-fun moments don't belong in books. Not filler fight scenes, not filler conversations, and not filler sex scenes. Just don't go for it. The best thing, though, the best thing about this book is its ending. Huge spoiler. You ready? Ash, that super awesome best friend Mia made at the school, she's actually a traitor. She and her brother, two of Mia's only allies, not only murdered one of their other friends slash allies and tried to frame Mia for it, but they kill Trick. They kill him. He is dead. It was devastating. And it's horrible because you can sort of see it coming. Partway through, when Trick is telling Mia all about his history, they make this pact that if one of them fails or dies in the school, the other will carry out their revenge for them. And at this moment, you're kind of thinking, oh crap, Kristoff is going to kill Trick and then Mia will have to get really emotional revenge for him and it'll be awful. But you're also not really expecting it to happen because it doesn't happen in YA books, but then it does here. And not only that, but it happens because of Mia's best friend, who I suspect is an antagonist for the rest of the series. It is such a good twist, though. I did not see the Ash betrayal coming. Those moments leading up to it when we as the readers are finally let in on her perspective and we know she's been the villain all along and she starts talking to Trick and we just get this pit in our stomachs. It's so useless to kill him, right? She kills him so he can't warn anyone of her plans because he has this thing where he can smell poisons and she's going to poison all the teachers and she doesn't want him to give it away. But... Mia warns them and saves them anyway, so his death ends up being for nothing. It is heartbreaking. I didn't even think I was liking this book until that part. And Mia, oh gosh, when she's going back to warn everyone because she's finally figured it out, she's thinking about him, right? She's like, I have to get there before anything happens to Trick. And he is already dead by the time she's doing this. It ripped my heart out. The betrayal and the death, gosh, (sighs) she does go back to get revenge for him, though. And it is a really wonderful mirror scene and a full circle kind of thing, but it is rough. So my advice with this, don't be afraid to kill off the love interest. This sounds heartless, but it it creates impact. It cannot be said it does not create impact. If you need to create motivation in your main character, which Mia didn't even really need to be honest because she was already trying to kill a bunch of people, but whatever, Nothing achieves this like killing a child, killing a mentor, or killing a love interest, because those are like the most fundamentally evil things we can think of, right? The worst losses. And so you need to, to a certain extent, be willing to do this. Readers need to at least suspect you're capable of it. Don't shy away from hard deaths. Don't contrive them for no reason. But Trick in this book didn't feel like he existed only to die and create emotional hardship. He had purpose and character outside of Mia. His whole goal, to get revenge on his grandfather, remained front and center and was never Mia-related. He had a history and a future until Ash just stole it away. This is going to be a really hit-or-miss type of move. Some readers don't like character deaths, and if you kill too many, they might give up, like I admittedly did to Game of Thrones, But if you can kill off one character, just one, that makes this kind of impact, readers will keep on for the sake of the other characters they like and to see how the death echoes into the rest of the story. It's probably not going to drive them away. So try your hand at, you know, murder in stories, not real life. That's an important not the trick is the only person to die in this book. He is far from the first or last, but he is the most memorable. It's particularly rough because he and Mia are on the outs when he dies, but he's thinking of her as he falls to his death. And because he has this big life goal that isn't even related to her that we know he won't be able to fulfill now. It's tough, but that's how you do character deaths well. Give them unfulfilled goals, give them unresolved conflicts with those they love, Are these not the things that kill us in real life? Put them in the book. It may seem ironic, but these types of choices connect readers to the story. They make them care because stakes just got real, and the plot now has an unforeseen direction to take. Really utilize this, so long as your theme is dark. And even, sometimes, when it's not. I do normally love dark, but not usually so graphic. So, that's the story of my love-hate relationship with this book. Awesome opening chapter, subpar first hundred pages. Awesome theme, uncomfortable execution. Totally life-altering betrayal that I admittedly loved and saw no downside to. I love plot. Just a lot of conflicting emotions. It's a very in-depth world, and that's, believe it or not, something I think we're lacking these days. I am very curious about the creepy shadow cat. I will almost certainly eventually read the rest of the series, but it's going to take a certain mindset to retain my sanity while doing so, so it may be a while. But I would recommend if you go into it with your eyes open. Great story, and some great storytelling techniques you can learn from. Well, that's it for today's Catherine's Corner episode. Hopefully you got some good advice out of it, and I will see you on the next page.